Karen Hartglass. You are listening to It's All About Food. My guest today is Gregory F. Tague, author of a new book, The Vegan Evolution. You've got to like that title. I know you do because you're like me. That's why you're listening to this program. <laughs> and I've had the opportunity to review it and we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about scholar, author, and editor Gregory F. Tague, PhD, from New York University. He was a professor in the departments of literature, writing, and publishing, interdisciplinary studies, and founder and senior developer of the Evolutionary Studies Collaborative at St. Francis College, New York. He was also the founder and organizer of a number of Darwin-inspired moral sense colloquia and other multidisciplinary events. Books include The Vegan Evolution, Transforming Diets and Agriculture, which we're going to talk about in a moment, An Ape Ethic and the Question of Personhood, Art and Adaptability, Consciousness and Cognitive Culture, Evolution and Human Culture, and Making Mind, Moral Sense and Consciousness. In book series or journals, Tag's published work in evolutionary studies spans disciplines across literature, material culture, and visual art, moral philosophy, law, science, and paleoanthropology. Professor Tay has also written or edited nine other academic books or literary anthologies, including Character and Consciousness, Origins of English Dramatic Modernism, and Puzzles of Faith and Patterns of Doubt. He is the founding editor of the peer-reviewed ASEBL journal, now a website, Ethics, Arts, Evolution, and is general editor of the Bibliotecos Literary Site and Literary Veganism, an online journal. Welcome, Gregory. Well, thank you for having about me. Food. You're welcome. Thank you. You know, I, I found you. I'm glad I found you, but I found you reading comments and I don't know whose post it was, but there was a post on Facebook and you had made a comment that related to lab meat. And we'll talk about that because you have a whole section on it in your last chapter of your book. But I loved what you said, and I thought, oh, yes, that's I want to be on this person's team because <laughs> I agree. I agreed with you. Now I didn't copy the comment, and I wish I did because I don't remember exactly what I what you said, but I just remember I agreed with you. Do you remember that post? Yes, okay. yes, I do. I, I remember the person who posted it, but I won't mention his name. And um, I wasn't the only person who had said something, I'm not even sure what I said, but I think it was something like, well, you know, um, that's, that's just not for me. Yeah, well, that led me to finding the literary vegan, which I'd like to talk a little bit about. And then that led me to the vegan ev evolution. So let's jump into the vegan evolution. And before we talk about the book, I wanna know what was your vegan evolution? Oh, that's that's a good question. Thank you. Um, it, 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 you know, it's never it's never a situation, at least I don't think so, 
where people wake up one morning and say, oh, you know, I'm going to be a vegan. It's a very gradual process. So my wife and I have been married about 27 years. And when we first got married, we were not eating any kind of red meat or pork anyway. And the only meat we ate was chicken. And it, was that for health reasons or what? No, it was really for ethical reasons, but we didn't know that at the time. We had no idea there was such a thing as an ethical vegan. And we had never used the word veganism. We just didn't eat certain yeah. things. But as time went on, we started to become more aware of what everyone now knows, you know, oh, I love animals and I have a pet dog and stuff like that, but you know, I'll eat a dead cow. So over time we realized, you know, why are we even doing this? So my wife, I, I have to credit her, Frederica Jacks with, and I, I, I acknowledge her in the book, um, really raising our consciousness uh, quite a bit. So it, it took a while, but eventually we weaned ourselves off of dairy and off of meat, off of eggs, all that kind of stuff. Excellent. You've been a professor at St. Francis College in New York in literature, writing and publishing and interdisciplinary studies. And you've written numerous books, including the one we're talking about. You're an academic. And it's clear in the book that I just read that you've reviewed mountains of research and pulled upon numerous studies and other people's opinions. And you come to this conclusion, the vegan diet and the vegan lifestyle is the best for humanity and the earth's future, if we're going to have a future as we know it. And it seems pretty obvious. It's obvious to me without reviewing all of that mountain of research. And for me, I've been vegan for 34 years and a lot of this didn't even exist when I was just learning and getting started. So on one hand, I'm really excited that more people are writing about it and more people are making these conclusions based on sense and science. But at the same time, there are plenty of people who aren't. So I'm just going to thank you for doing your work. And I hope uh, people read the book and review the work and come to the same conclusion. I'm curious about St. Francis College and how they have received your work, your colleagues, your superiors, the administration, et cetera. Uh, okay. That, that, yeah, that's great. That's a great question. Um, St. Francis College is a great place. And in fact, we're probably, I just have to preface to, before I answer your question. It's probably one of the first colleges right now, they're in the process of moving campus from an older building on Remsen Street to a new facility at 179 Livingston Street in downtown Brooklyn. Mm. I'm not there. I'm technically still an employee of the college, but I have quote unquote retired. St. Francis is a Franciscan institution. What does that mean? It means, as it says, St. Francis. St. Francis is the patron saint of animals, mm. uh, patron saint of the environment, along with St. Clair. So it just seemed fitting 
for me to do some of the things I did. Uh, the the St. Francis College, you know, it, it's Catholic with a small C. So we have a student population that is incredibly diverse. All faiths, a, a, anyone you can imagine. So it just seemed fitting to me to do something along the lines of evolution, evolutionary studies and Darwin events. That's what started all of this. Hmm. And then as I was going along um, and I was writing about great apes, I was interested in their diet. So the book, The Vegan Evolution, actually sprang from the book about great apes and ape ethic. So to answer your question, um, and I have to be very careful what I say here, you know, St. Francis College, as any college, it's an institution, and they survive off of, um, many smaller institutions survive off of um, tuition dollars. So they're going to do things that try to bring students in, programming. So the Evolutionary Studies Collaborative that I started there, and, and I worked with a psychologist who's still there, Christy Biolsi, and um, a biologist, Alison Dell, she's still there, and someone in management, as a matter of fact, who's still there, John Dilliard. I work with them very closely. Um, but, you know, they're not vegans. They might be vegan-ish. I don't even know. But the college, at one point, um, I, I asked permission and I took the bold step at a faculty assembly and I asked if people who hold events, because I ran a lot of events at the college, mm -hmm. if they would consider having um, food that is, you know, not meat, not dairy. Um, the reception was cool, I must admit. So... I don't know. And I don't know what's going to happen in the new cafeteria at, at the college. I'm, I'm hopeful that they will have some plant-based options and things like that, because the college has a whole part of, of their um, biology and health sciences dealing with allied health and health sciences and health promotions. So you, you would think there would be some interest in, in what people are consuming. So that's kind of a roundabout way of, of answering that question. And I, I hope it was as diplomatic I could possibly make it. I hear you. The college is in New York City. So we have a vegan mayor now. Yes, yes, Eric supports plant-based diet. So I sure. would hope that that would also inform and encourage the new cafeteria. Yeah, yeah. And the president of the college, Miguel Martinez Sainz, who's done a tremendous amount of work for St. Francis is, I guess it's fair to say, very friendly with Eric Adams because, you know, the college was literally, literally at the old campus, literally across the street from Brooklyn Borough Hall. And that's mm. where Eric Adams sat. That's and right. Eric Adams, um, if people don't know this, I mean, he changed, literally changed his life around by going to a plant-based diet. He, he wrote a book about this. He and his octogenarian mother, had type two diabetes and they just turned it around. Yes. Uh, Eric has been on this show twice. Oh, okay, And I great. was fortunate <laughs> to interview him the first time at in his office at Brooklyn Borough Hall. So 
Um, I like him. I know when you're a politician, uh, you get beat up all the time on both sides and and sure. he seems to be able to take it. Yes. And hopefully he'll be able to move this city forward. It's not I, an easy sure job and one no. person cannot do it. It takes a whole council. <laughs> well, since you mentioned him, if it's okay if I could just continue yes, with please. this. I know um, I haven't, I still read the Times, but I haven't been following um, things too closely up there. But I know he instituted or is trying to change the diet of, of children yes. in, in the public schools. Now, this leads right into the vegan evolution, because the vegan evolution, the book that I talk about, um, even though I do talk about great apes and I talk about human evolution, the evolution of the title, as you know, deals with cultural evolution and the way we can achieve a kind of quote unquote vegan economy is by educating young people, not with a cudgel, not telling them, no, you have to eat the green peas and you can't eat the chicken nuggets, but you know, letting them know where their food comes from, how it's processed, how highly processed it is, things like that. So absolutely. You know, when uh, children are educated, they often make the best choices, especially when it comes to where their food comes from. They get it. They get it. They early. do. Yeah. yeah. Still with Eric Adams. From what I've read, he's making decisions based on long term solutions. Maybe not with everything, but some things. And that's frustrating for people because they want to see results today. And short-term results are most of the time not the best. And investing in children and improving their behavior early is the best. This is the best choice. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about him in that department. We need and a healthy citizenry. Exactly. Now, just staying on politics, I took a gazillion notes. I'm not going to get to them all. <laughs> But uh, you mentioned the Green New Deal and how it's worth supporting, but you also talk about what's not in it. Right. Well, and you know, I was very careful because when I looked at that bill, because um, this book came into being during the pandemic. So I, I don't know that the bill has changed. And I was very careful in the book about saying that this is kind of an academic exercise. And I don't think the book has changed. And that, that is definitely worth supporting the Green New Deal. But there's a lot of language in there that's perhaps deliberately ambiguous about family farming and, and healthy food. But you know, what exactly does that mean? And if we rely on large corporations to tell us what to eat, and if we rely on large corporations who are determining what goes into food products, you know, their definition of healthy may not be the same as ours. So um, all I say in the book about the, the Green New Deal is that it could have, I, I thought it could have been a little more explicit about vegan or plant-based, whichever term people prefer. I was reading this book over the last few weeks during a brutal heat wave which affected my brain for a while until I finally gave in and turned the air conditioning on, which I really didn't want to do because I know what a disaster air conditioning is for the environment, but I just couldn't think anymore. So I did. 
mea culpa. And so I was reading this and a lot of it has your book and a lot of it has to do with the climate crisis. And I like to use the appropriate words, climate catastrophe, climate crisis. It's not climate change. We're in trouble and our actions need to be big and they're not. And people are still walking on eggshells, excuse that expression, tiptoeing because we don't want to invoke too much fear or insult people or turn people away. <sighs> it's not a good strategy. No. And so early in the book, I spend a lot of time relying on um, a researcher, Andrew Hoffman. He, wrote, he published a book in 2015 about the, the, the quote unquote climate science debate. And um, actually that was one of the books when I read that book, I forget the title offhand. If you, if you give me a second, I could look it up if it's necessary, sure. but um, Andrew Hoffman, because that book, when I was reading that book, it was before the vegan evolution. And I said, wow, you know what? I could probably sort of use his ideas but use them in terms of veganism. Mm. But he spends a lot of time talking about what you said at the very beginning. No matter how much data you throw at some people because of either you know, confirmation bias or other fancy terms that psychologists come up with, they're just gonna shut down. They're going to believe what they wanna believe. That's why in the vegan evolution, um, I, I, I say again and again, you know, I'm just laying it out and you know, maybe it'll change some people's minds and then they'll help change other people's minds because I'm not gonna to try to change anyone's mind. It's really about education. Mm -hmm. But those two things are intimately connected, yes, to climate and eating. It's about education and it's about language. It's about the language we use and what it means. And you're a writer and you use language in a certain way to get your points across. You wrote, this is one of my words that irks me, humane and humanely on page 41, or at least in the book that I read, I don't know what page it is in the print version. You wrote to say humanely raised or slaughtered proves the point about how humans lord over other creatures with their supposed sovereign dominion in the distorted ideology of humanity. And humanity these days always has to be in quotes. Right. I have such feelings about what it is to be human and what is humane because of our history, at least as far back as we know it. Humane, what we've done as humans does not equate to what we believe the word humane means. We're not nice. No, um, <laughs> if I could diverge just a tiny bit, um, I, I was hoping that the vegan evolution would be my last book because it's, it's just so much work. But of course, no, I have another idea that I've been working <laughs> on. I don't know what's going, I don't know what it'll turn out to be, but it's related to what you're saying. I've been reading some political philosophers, um, you know, e either their original work or um, commentaries on them, people like, you know, Hobbes. Locke, Rousseau, um, John Stuart Mill, and then some of these more contemporary people like John Rawls and Robin Nozick. And it's really interesting 
that the political philosophy is centered around and only around humans. Now, someone might say, well, Gregory, of course, but no, because the project I'm working on now, the idea I have now, I don't want to give too much away because I don't know if this is going to go anywhere, <laughs> um, but it deals with forest sovereignty. And people have talked about forest sovereignty before. This is not a new idea, but what I'm trying to do now, as I did in some of these other books, is take thinking that's supposed to be geared towards humans and humanity and show, well, that's the problem because forests have been around and there are mm. organisms from bacteria up to great apes in the canopies of trees. And they've been there far longer than we've been here. And they help as eco engineers service the self-sustaining systems of forest that help us breathe, yeah. but yet they're not part of quote unquote humanity. So we can use political philosophy to establish nations and the nations therefore have territorial rights and the nations can therefore go in and deforest and do whatever they want. Not just to the animals, but of course, to the indigenous people who don't own anything. Forest sovereignty. There are some that say that plants and plant life are ruling us or using us to do their bidding. Well, we evolved around plants. I mean, you know, you read the book and I know that's kind of a hard chapter. The chapter where I talk about early, uh, well, not the early humans, the Australopiths and things like that, Paranthropus. Um, that is but, a hard chapter. And I wanna say that other books that I've read <laughs> There's just so many terms that I just can't keep looking them up. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I knew that would be. That's why that chapter doesn't, the book didn't start with that, you know. I mean, as a writer, you know, I said, okay, I have to ease people into that. And then you get to that chapter. And the, the chapter on biology is a little rough too, you know. But I'm hoping by the time you get to the end of the book with the cultural evolution, it, it starts to really fall into place. Um, but just if I could interrupt the two of us for a second, the title of that book by Andrew Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, it's called How Culture Shapes the Climate Change Debate. And it, it really was kind of inspirational. It's a very short book published by Stanford University Press, but um, it was inspirational. And, and that's what helped me think about how culture can shape the vegan economy, which is related to, I don't know that veganism is going to solve the climate problem. I don't know that veganism is going to solve every health problem out there, but you know, it's certainly a big piece. Yeah, it can certainly help us get to a better place and give us more time so that we can discover new solutions to the problems we've created. Let's continue talking about culture. So my understanding is that, well, in today in 2022 and even in 2000 and in, in the nineties when we were talking about diet and lifestyle, especially someone like myself who was an, a vegetarian in the nineties and then a vegan, uh, a lot of people would come back at me saying, you know, this isn't who we are. 
culturally, we are not this way. We have our traditions and our foods and our holidays and everything is centered around our dominion, <laughs> our superiority over non-human animals. And you go back into our long history and it really is a part of our culture, being plant eaters, plant-based eaters, not centered around eating animals. Right. Um, so as, as hard as that chapter is, although there are two actually chapters there with the um, very early humans and then the Neanderthals, I mean, they're worth reading because I, I dug as deep as I possibly could into the science. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a paleoanthropologist. You know, I make that clear from the beginning, but I know how to read. And most people know how to read. And it's quite oh, clear. I would, I would, be, I don't know about that anymore, but that's very kind of you. <laughs> no, it, it's clear. I mean, if you look at the evidence that's gathered, and you know, in, in one early part of the book, I do look at other um, um, people who are opposed to anything that might be vegan. But anyway, to get to the Australopiths and Paranthropists, you know, it, it's a matter of studying their dentition. I never thought that I would be reading articles, scientific articles that were incredibly difficult to read about fossil teeth and, and, and what they call um, crannies or what we call cavities and the, the, the cusps and, and how the cusps are formed. But it all led to how, um, yeah, I mean, we evolved really, if you look at our teeth, as plant eaters, we're omnivores. That, that may be one of the defenses that someone will raise. We're omnivores, right. But um, the shapes, the shape of our teeth. I mean, I once did a, an event at the college and I had as guests, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if people know these names, Jeff Sebo. Jeff Sebo runs a graduate program in animal and environmental studies at NYU. Yeah. I had him on a panel. I also had Carlo Alvaro. Carlo Alvaro is a raw vegan and has written extensively about this. So the three of us formed a small panel um, and there was a lot of audience um, participation. And one of the people in the audience insisted, insisted that to this day as humans, we have canine teeth because that's what's used to rip apart meat. But that's <laughs> not true. That's not true. It's not, right. I mean, the canine was for defensive purposes. And the reason the canines... In, in modern humans, anatomically modern humans, and especially males, is so small it's because we don't defend each other that way anymore. We've come up with other ways or we're just more cooperative. I was gonna bring up teeth and obviously you <laughs> jumped into it before I did. Um, I've got teeth on my mind because I'm in the process of getting a root canal retreated. <laughs> a lot of fun, but I've heard numerous people talk about why humans are meant to eat plants and talking about our whole physiology and teeth are included, our shape of our teeth, but you go into it so much more in terms of our enamel thickness. Right, the enamel <laughs> thickness, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating. It is. 
Yeah, and one of the take home points is, and I bring this up again and again in that chapter, because some people may say, no, no, we, were, we, were, we evolved to eat meat. And then some other people will insist, no, no, we evolved to eat plants. But actually the evidence is a little mixed. It seems clear to me, I, you know, I wrote about this, that the evidence leans more to the side of the plant eaters. Um, but the fact that there's this constellation of, of mixed information, mixed data, I should say, from the, from the record, from the fossil record. And because there are so many different species from which we emerged, that it, it builds the case, in fact, that we can be, and there's no reason we shouldn't be plant eaters. There's no single line of human descent. That's not how it works. And Darwin talked about this in 1859 in his book. So, we obviously took a wrong turn somewhere. Well, it may depend. I mean, we, we took some right turn. I think we started taking wrong turns, you know, with the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, even then, Alexander von Humboldt um, from the late 18th, early 19th century, he did a lot of work in, in South America. And even then, he said, why are we cutting down so many trees? Mm. And there were people who talked about air pollution, even, I don't, don't ask me, I can't cite it, but I know I've read it going back to the 19th century. So, you know, and then in this country, the United States, come on, in the 1970s, um, you and I were around then, that was the battle cry and we didn't do anything. We just made bigger cars and used more yeah. gas. No, at every turn since I've been around, we have made the wrong ones. Sadly, very sadly, but we still have hope. And there are some of us promoting this message that we know can make a tremendous difference. And so you talk to, I forget his last name, Carlos. Carlo Alvaro. Alvaro, a he's a raw vegan. Yes, and he's written a book. In fact, it was published in the same series as my book. Um, yeah, raw vegan. Do you want to talk about raw vegan? Well, you do talk about fire and how cooked foods. There's a lot of theories about how cooked foods enabled us to get more calories and enabled us to enlarge our brains. And then some people attribute that to our brains being enlarged by animals and then uh, more researchers I've seen recently say that, no, it's probably more likely that we just were able to get more calories and uh, not necessarily meat, but we could talk a little bit about that. And I wonder where raw food fits into that scenario. Well, as, as I say in the book, and you know, sometimes the simplest explanation is the explanation. So, okay, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, big researcher, Mr. So-and-so, and I've come up with this theory and this is the only way that I think that the human brain evolved. But it was probably a constellation of different things. So it probably had something to do with diet. It probably had something to do with social groups. And it probably had something to do with communication and, and tool making. I mean, th there's probably no mm -hmm. single reason why the human brain expanded the way it did. 
I mean, Neanderthal brains on average were larger than ours and they didn't survive. They died off, well, I don't know, 28, 30,000 years ago. Um, in terms of the raw food, I, I know I cite one article, I can't think of the person offhand, but I know there was at least one researcher who's, who seemed to think that um, the human brain could have um, enlarged even eating plant, there's protein in plants. Yes, absolutely, I've read that, yeah. So on this concept of culture, in today's world, we have these images of what people are supposed to be. Fortunately, they're kind of changing. For a long time, we've had this idea of what the man is and what the woman is, and you know, the man as the hunter and the man as the predator. And again, you go back to history. And at one point you quoted Hart and Sussman and said, we evolved not as hunters, but to avoid violence afflicted on us. And early homonyms were the beef in prehistoric times. Can we like get into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we still are. I mean, we moved from Brooklyn to North Carolina and my wife and daughter um, took a walk yesterday afternoon. I stayed home because, in fact, I wanted to prepare for this a little. And um, being New Yorkers and Brooklynites, they took a walk. <laughs> it was on a paved walk and saw this gigantic snake. And my daughter, uh. the uh, artist, took a picture of it, Ooh. a video, and she, and she was frightened to wits. People get eaten by crocodiles. People get eaten by sharks. I mean, this is not anything new. And we are a small species. You stand me next to a chimpanzee and you'll see the difference. I mean, chimpanzees have muscles. Bonobos are more gracile than chimpanzees. You know, some people mm. think we're a little more close to them. But it's probably a combination of how the um, lines emerged. So we've always been preyed upon and people forget that. And we have these fears of the forest and fears of large animals. And there's a reason for that. We have fears of snakes. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's very true. And there's, you're right, there's reason for that because we are not the macho predator that we like to think we are. Yeah. You wrote, uh, I again, I've grabbed a lot of different things from the book and I'm just randomly picking some out. But in chapter five, uh, you write a conclusion confirmed by Bonnie Yoshida Levine, 2019, who says the bulk of a hunter gatherer diet is plant food. The gut biomes of hunter gatherers outside of modern agricultural influences tend to be healthy. So when we talk about how our history is based on being a hunter-gatherer. Hunter is what gets stressed. People see us as, yes, we're the hunter-gatherers. The man goes out and pulls, drags back in the big animal and that's what everybody feasts on. But it's not, a, it should be gatherer-hunter, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of this had something to do with um, an early paleoanthropologist, Raymond Dart who made one of the first finds in South Africa of what was 
probably an australopith and um i don't know he seemed to he did good work but you know he seemed to promulgate this this theory that um these early hominins were you know meat-eating hunters but that wasn't true and this, this went all the way through into the 60s um jane goodall was was really shocked when and she writes about this in her her main work not not the popular books her main work the chimpanzees of gombe published by harvard university press well i think it may appear in the polio books too but you know she had been studying them and they're very they're really peaceful because if you get into a fight you 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 could get injured and you know there's no medical doctor to take care of you if you're a chimpanzee so they tend to avoid. There's a lot of bluff, a lot of bluster, a lot of display. But Jane Goodall was shocked when she saw one group decimate another and actually kill off. That's that's how rare that is mm, I see. Mm -hmm. among the great apes. We, on the other hand, are quite aggressive and for no reason. As the philosopher, the German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer pointed out in the early 19th century, you know, we'll be aggressive just out of maliciousness and no other reason, but no yeah. reason. And, you know, I just wonder why that is, how that's developed in our, in our DNA or natural selection. How is it that we have developed with this characteristic? How has it benefited our survival? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I know I, that I, I've often thought that would be another interesting project, you know, human aggression. Someone probably has done it. Um, but this to get back to the point of the book and what you're saying, um, you know, a lot of it has to do with culture. So mm. we, we, you know, uh, we moved to North Carolina. I'm waiting to see men, even women, walking around with sidearms. But we're in Chapel Hill. So a lot of that is, is actually discouraged or prohibited. We see signs in um, at the front door of, of restaurants and things like that. And it's a picture of a gun with a, a red line through it, meaning wow, no guns. Can't, yeah, no guns. But let's face it, I mean, it's a cultural thing in, in the United States. It's a gun culture. So the point I try to make in the book is that, well, without using it as a cudgel um, in small communities with children, we could have schoolyard gardens, but we don't just have them grow the vegetables. We can have them grow the vegetables and then cook the vegetables because if it's a school there's probably a cafeteria mm -hmm. and we could show them how to make plant-based foods you know we could start a whole cultural movement that way on a small scale and build out well this has been happening for a few decades now in pockets here and there right. and it's been shown to be very successful so it needs to grow right i had i had students i when I finished teaching, just for the heck of it, my last semester, I asked, um, I had four, I had four, four, four load, and I would ask the students, um, how many of you, when you were in middle school or grade school, did you have schoolyard gardens? And a few of them raised their hands. And I said, I'm just curious, did you ever 
eat any of the food or did you prepare it? No. And one of them was upset. She said, oh, we grew these tomatoes and we couldn't even eat them. So what's, what's the point? It's like an experiment. Well, I see little green spaces all over New York City, these little parks, and, and some of them are maintained by the local community, but I really think we should have a massive change where anything that has dirt that is growable, we should be growing food and the local community should be responsible for it and, and eat from it. That should be like a thing, in my opinion. Well, you're <laughs> right. And a colleague of mine, Cynthia Molina, um, has done a lot of research on community gardens hmm. and how they're usually run by women. I mean, yeah. we didn't bring it up, but you know, ecofeminism and fem feminism is a large part of this conversation we're having. So Cynthia Molina um, and I, we, we wrote a paper, but she she has done a lot of work on this. And you know, a, a lot of the minority communities, Hispanic communities, they have gardens run by women. And the men, it's like they don't really want to be part of it because of some cultural thing. Yeah. And I, I hope I'm not saying the wrong thing. I'm just repeating what, what Dr. Sure. Molina has told me. We can't, we can't include all men because certainly there are many men that are gardeners and love gardening and have done some great work promoting local community gardens. But in general. In general, yes. So, I mean, that kind of movement. So just as Mayor Adams is trying to at least have some plant-based options or some days where it's only plant-based for the students so they could see. Um, more could be done with the community gardens. And you know, I spent time in the book talking about this, about how during the pandemic, Governor's Island, there was a garden there. And then mm -hmm. all this, it was a garden for teaching purposes. And then all right. of a sudden they realized, wow, we could give this food away. People could eat this food. Well, <laughs> it, it used to be a um, military installation. So there must be kitchens there. Right. Why don't you give grants to minority women? Let them do the work and make the food. I mean, mm -hmm. men too, but you know, I'm just sure. saying. There are many solutions out there and you list uh, numerous ideas in your book. You did mention that literature and visual and musical arts can play a pivotal role. And I would like to expand on that a little bit. For one reason, my partner Gary and I were both performing artists and we really believe in theater as a tool to not only tell stories, but help people understand difficult situations, ask the questions so that people can start thinking about answers. And, and you also talked about memes, memes, which uh, I guess we have to learn to accept them because they're very much a part of our society today. And uh, I could just imagine Dorothy Gale from Kansas and the Wicked Witch, Glinda saying, uh, are you a good meme or a bad <laughs> meme? <laughs> I'm not a meme at all. Uh, <laughs> but your, your thoughts on this. Well, I, yeah, I try to spend some time in the book. It's not a whole chapter, it's not even a section, but I bring it up from time to time in terms of the cultural evolution that it could happen through um, the arts. 
And one of the things that Frederica Jacks, my wife and I did in December of 2019, and this was literally just a brainstorm. I, I, I was, we were sitting down, having a glass of vegan wine. And all of a sudden I said, bingo, Eureka, I'm going to start a journal and call it literary veganism. That's exactly how it happened. And I set it up the most simple way you can imagine. And if anyone wants to go there, it's www.litvegan.net. No advertisements. We haven't even really publicized this. When something gets published, I put it on social media, of course, but I haven't paid for ads anywhere. Um, when we were publishing books, we did that. But no, and, and the word has gotten around. Yeah. So. Oh, I found it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I haven't spent enough time there. I did read a few poems and I read the story about the circus trainer, the elephant story. Oh, the Mitch Levenberg story? Mitch Levenberg is a colleague of mine. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah. And that is very funny, that story, right? Yeah. Well, I read it one morning and I would like to go back to it, but I, I could see it even as a film or a short or something visual. Oh, well, yeah. if you want to, after we go off the air, I can give you Mitch's contact information. Mm. He, yeah, he's really, one. he's also a bit of a performer too. So, mm -hmm. I see. but yeah, so the literary veganism was a way, although we didn't think of it at the time, of, of helping people understand what this cultural movement could be about. And you don't have to be a vegan to submit. Um, all we ask is that the writing is animal and environmentally friendly because a lot of people who have submitted, they're not vegans, which is the point that I make in the book. I'm not trying to beat anyone over the head or twist yes. your arm, you have to be a vegan. We know that tremendous change can happen without people being 100% vegan, and that's not even possible, whatever 100% vegan means. But we need to really reduce, significantly reduce mm -hmm. our reliance on animals, animals for food, and animals exploited for so many other reasons. Woof. Okay, let's go back in time. You've written a number of other books, and your last one had to do with animals and personhood. Can you just give us a little discussion? Because we've talked about this on the program in, uh, terms yeah, of, sure. um, in terms of Weiss, the lawyer. Oh, Stephen Wise. Stephen sure, Wise. Yeah. We talked well, about Stephen Wise. I've okay. had him on the show. And recently, Lee Hall, uh, we talked about personhood and where it's going and is it the right direction? And what are your well, thoughts? Well, I, I take a completely different angle, which is not, <laughs> okay. to, which is not to say they're wrong and I'm right. No. Um, in fact, at the beginning of the, the book is called An Ape Ethic and the Question of Personhood. And I've read Stephen Wise's works. I, I was inspired by him. Um, and, and I read the quote unquote philosopher's brief, which became a book called Chimpanzee Rights by um, such renowned names as Kristen Andrews and, and Sue Donaldson. There are a number of authors there. And it seemed to me, as I was reading this, and this is not a criticism, it's just an observation, that the argument they were making for personhood had a lot to do with um, how much like us 
mm. great apes are. And I suppose, you know, it, you have to realize that their argument, it's not really an academic argument. It's before a judge and the it's judge has argument. to follow certain yep. whatever. So what I did was I came up with this idea about personhood, not because of the similarities. I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the similarities, but because of their differences. And the main difference is that with apes, I mean, I could have included other animals um, and I do mention other animals, but it's because of the, their ecosystem engineering. I mean, if you think of what beavers do, for instance, they create these dams, they build these habitats for themselves, mm -hmm. For other fish or fishes, we might even be able to say, um, microorganisms, um, amphibians, I mean, things thrive. So the whole point of that book, Innate Ethic, is that we should grant them personhood, what I call forest personhood, because of their ability to engineer ecologically the forest for everyone's benefit. This is what now has led me into this sovereignty idea. You see how these three things have become connected. The ape ethic book, the veganism book, which deals with human evolution. And I have a whole chapter in there, if anyone's interested on ape diets and you know the forest sovereignty. We need to change our perception. We have this perception that we're at the top, that we're the smartest, and we should control everything. And slowly, as our science evolves, we're learning things about the different species. And some people like to call it instinct. We never wanna call it intelligence, but I acknowledge it as an intelligence that these other species have that we just don't have. Mm -hmm. Just deal with it, respect it. And we need to change the way we look at everyone on this planet and what their function is. And at the very minimum, our function is not to destroy each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've learned, we're learning about navigation through birds and how they do it. So many different things we are learning. I just finished yeah. reading a book by, I guess I could mention this. It hasn't been published yet. Oh, sure. Um, Carol. Gigliotti has published is, is publishing a book called the, the Creative Lives of Animals. I'm writing a review, which will likely appear in Leonardo Reviews Online. And it's fantastic. And it, it, it affirms just what you're saying and how we don't really look. Well, it, it's, it's been happening you know, more in the last 20, 30 years. Scientists, especially field scientists, are starting to look more closely at all kinds of species, you know, from spiders and ants to, of course, the, the megafauna, the great apes, to see really what they can do and what they are doing. We could learn a lot. And at the very minimum, we could have a great deal more respect mm -hmm, for, sure. for all these other species, which we don't have. No, that's sad. Yeah, well, I'm glad you're thinking about writing another book. You've got a lot of great ideas and developing those ideas is only going to help all of us. I talk sometime, sometimes about this global consciousness that it's almost like a bank somewhere 
And when we think about things as individuals and we write them and we put them out there and we talk about them, it goes into the bank and we all have some way of accessing it. Whether we read it or hear the conversation, mm -hmm. it's out there. So I think it's important to do that work. Yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. How would you like to wrap this up before we go? It's Sure. Well, thank you, Karen, for having me on the show. I, I, it's really a privilege. And um, I just encourage people to, you know, at least go to the Literary Veganism website because there are resources there about becoming vegan. There's a media page with sounds, recordings. Mm. Um, I have music there by the South African actor, Shakespearean actor, Venestran Arumagan. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of stuff right there. And one person who stumbled upon that journal, and I, I, I quote her, but I don't name her. She, she read this story about Daisy the cow, and she said that it actually changed her, and she didn't want to eat meat anymore. So it's like, whoa, you know? That's so powerful. I would just ask people to take a look at the Literary Veganism website. I, I agree with you. It's a it's a different approach than many other people have been taking to educate and to share this realization that people are having. I support it. Thank you. Beautiful. Okay. Gregory Tague, author <laughs> of The Vegan Evolution. Thank you so much for joining me today. Keep writing and enjoy North Carolina. Okay. Thank you, Karen. We will. Okay. Take care. Be well. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining me today, everyone. That was Gregory Tague, author of The Vegan Evolution, Transforming Diets and Agriculture. In mid-September of this year, coming up just in a few weeks, my partner Gary and I will be heading over to Europe. And we will be spending some time in the London area, the Paris area, the south of France, and in some of Italy. And we will be talking to other vegans, doing some interviews there and discovering what vegan food there is to offer there. I'm very excited because since I lived in France in the 90s, so much has happened. There are so many restaurants and so many different products and options, and we can't wait to discover them. But I wanted to ask you if you have been to Europe and there have been restaurants and stores and products that you've tried, please let us know so we can check them out. I would really appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All About Food, and I'm your host, Karen Hartglass. It's All About Food. The podcast has been broadcasting since 2009. There's really a lot to talk about when we talk about food. You can find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. You can send comments and questions to info at realmeals.org. I love hearing from you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a delicious week. Mm -hmm.